Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. Amen, amen, and the church said. Thank you, Miss Katie. As always, Mr. Austin Ryan. I'm Ryan. And Ben. Uh, also, Liam is out this week. Uh, and those of you that don't know, just so, I, I think it's important that we point some things like this out. Those of you that don't know, because there'd be no reason for you to know, so I'm going to tell you, so now you will know. Uh, Mr. Liam, who normally plays our drums for us, who is our Swiss Army knife, who will occasionally play the bass or the piano or whatever, he says he'll do anything but sing. And uh, we're so grateful to have him. But what you don't know is that even this week, while he was out of town, all these talented musicians that come and, and share their gifts with us when our normals are out, Liam is the one who finds these guys. Because I don't know where to go find musicians. Uh, I asked Randy Gross about the drums, and he didn't agree to do it. And so we needed a drummer this week. But So when you see Liam back in here, I want you to shake his hand and tell him that you really appreciate how hard he works during the week to make sure that we have musicians who are capable and prepared and talented enough to come and help Miss Katie uh, to lead worship. Because as talented as Miss Katie is, I've seen her play the piano, and uh, we'd, we'd prefer that not be. <laughs> we don't want her playing the piano any more than we want me singing, okay? So, uh, so anyway, I just want you to know that, that that's where Liam goes. Some of you have said, hey, where do you find all these guys? And I'm like, eh. I don't really know a lot of musicians. Oddly enough, musicians don't run with fat preachers. So um, that being said, it is so good to be here in the house of the Lord. And that is perhaps one of my very favorite songs that has been written in the last 500 years is Revelation song. Because Revelation chapter 4, the word of God says that the creatures around the throne of God Echo out the praise, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then around them the 24 elders and all of the angels joined in with a heavenly chorus and they began to sing to the one who created all things is worthy of all glory and honor and power. And those of you that don't know who weren't in the five-year revelation study that we just finished on Wednesday nights, or those of you that were there that have forgotten what we studied in chapter four because it was in 2004, what I want to remind you of is that chorus who joins in with those heavenly creatures singing holy, holy, holy that is comprised of the 24. That is indicative of the fact that it's all of us. We, we are comprised in that picture of all the who gather around the throne of God. And that's why it's one of my very favorite songs that has been written in the last 500 years of church music because it is a direct picture of what we're going to do forever. So here's the deal. If you enjoyed that, good. If you didn't, you might want to check yourself because Jesus said you were going to do that forever. So if you didn't like it very much, you're not going to enjoy heaven very much. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm looking forward to how beautiful heaven must be. And singing at the top of my lungs, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. Amen? That's free preaching. 
You can start timing me now. We'll be in Esther chapter 4 this morning, the Old Testament book of Esther chapter 4. We'll be throughout the whole chapter really as we study this morning, but we'll focus in on a few places specifically throughout it. But as we journey into Esther chapter 4, we get into a part of this Old Testament book where we start to really relate to the story of Esther and Mordecai here in this book of the Bible. You know, the thing is, with the book of Esther, a lot of people remember chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, and what's to come. A lot of people, when you say uh, Esther, they go, oh, I love that book. It's the story of of Esther and what we're going to study this morning and how God used Esther and Mordecai to save the people. But if you don't study the first three chapters, you miss out on the truth of Esther and just how twisted and wild it is to get there and just how similar to them that we are. And so I don't have time to preach the first three chapters of Esther this morning, uh, but I do want to kind of give you just a little synopsis, so to speak, as we get into it. But if you'd read the first three chapters of this book already, you see sides of Esther and Mordecai that aren't quite as flattering. We have seen them kind of spinning the wheels of things around them. We've seen them positioning themselves in a place of power as they try to climb that that ladder of success, you might say, as they try to get themselves into a place of power in the king's court and the king's palace. So far in this chapter, you would have met in chapter 1, King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, depends on which Translation you want to use, right? Do you want to use his Arabic or his Hebrew description? But you would have met him either way, whatever you call him, what you're going to know is that he is the most powerful man in the world at this juncture. He has military prowess that that supersedes anybody that had been around in that time. He has more land, more riches, more people at his disposal than anybody in this whole entire world at this time. And he has his own set of problems. He ends up getting rid of his queen because she won't do things in front of his friends that he wants her to do. He's not a good guy. He gets given over to drunkenness and strong wine. He does a lot of things that he's not supposed to do. So he's not a good guy, but he's a rich guy and he's a powerful guy, the most powerful guy in the land. We have Mordecai, who is the cousin of Esther, And he has kind of been placed in her stead. He's her charge. He's kind of her caregiver, you might say. And so he has used the position and the beauty of his cousin Esther to try and help promote himself within the court of King Xerxes to try to get himself to a more powerful position. If he can get Esther in there, then he can move himself right up. And we also have Esther, who has seemingly had no problem doing whatever she could do by using her body and her physical beauty to place herself into this position of power, promoting herself even through what I would only describe as the most grotesque beauty pageant that has ever been come up with in the history of the world, where literally she would become part of the king's harem and concubine in order to move herself up the ladder in this beauty contest. And then we have Haman who is the evil prime minister of Persia, who has come from a family heritage. He has a long line in his family heritage of people who destroyed and killed and hated Jews. And so he's risen to this great power in Persia, and he has developed at this point an evil plot in which all of the Jews are going to be executed at a certain date. And if you'd like to know how he came up with that date, if you want to know how flippant he is with the Jewish people, the people of God's lives, he came up to it by rolling dice. 
That's how he came up with the date he was going to use. And so those are really the main characters, Esther and Mordecai. We have them as, as Jews rising to a place of, of power. King Xerxes, who is the power in the land. And Haman, who is the evil authority in the government who wishes to have all the Jews killed. That's kind of the, the five-minute situation where I explain the first three chapters of a book of the Bible that need five sermons to explain them. And so as we get to chapter four, we're going to start to see a lot of things going on that point to a change in attitude, a change in position, and a change in reverence for a few of our characters. And that's why we look at chapter four this morning, because we're heading into a new year. Last year, we looked at new years and new things in Christ, right? And we're heading into this. And so for many of us, we're going to look around and we're going to say, we wish to make changes in our lives. We wish to make changes in the world around us with the way that we live our lives. And so if we're going to do that, there's things in Esther chapter 4 that we're going to have to put into play in us because I am reminded as I read through Esther of us as Christians, we live in what would be described as a sinful land. We look around and the world doesn't really look the way that we wish it looked. Things are going on that we wish weren't going on. Things happen that we wish weren't happening. And sometimes we can look around and become bogged down by the situation, thinking it's seemingly hopeless. There's no chance that it's ever going to shift or change. We even find ourselves sometimes like Mordecai and Esther, which is the warning that we need to see. Saints living in a sinful land, and it becomes difficult to tell the difference between us and the sinful land around us. We start to look just like them. We start to smell like them. We start to act like them. We start to think like them and talk like them. And we find ourselves fitting in the world more and standing apart less than we used to. Now, maybe it's we're going through struggles or trials in our lives, and we start to look around and can't imagine what the other side of things look like when we're not walking through those valleys and walking through those struggles and trials, right? We begin to look at our situation, and we think, I don't know how I get through it, and so I'm going to get through it using the world's standards or the world's ways to get through it. But our text this morning starts to help us deal with the bleak and the turmoil, and we start to see that perhaps what we are going through is for our good. Perhaps we're walking through the valley because God has us in the valley for a specific reason. It may very well be that we are in the spot that we are in because God has brought us to it so he can do something very specific with us in that moment. And so I'd like to ask you to stand, please, in honor and reverence of the reading of the Holy Word of God from Esther chapter 4. We'll read the first two verses together and then skip down to verse 10 as we look at this idea. We are here for such a time as this, Esther chapter 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And then down to verse 10. And then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go in the king for these 30 days. And so they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart 
that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and gather the Jews present in the Shushan and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And so Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Let's pray, Father God, thank you. God, thank you that we can sing your scripture this morning, that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That, God, we can see that on display as a beautiful child entered the baptismal waters this morning, crying out to your holiness, God. And so, God, use your word this morning to move us because only your word can change us, that we might be more like you God, we'll give you the glory and the praise and the honor because we know if it happens, it's because you did it, Jesus. And it's in your precious name that we pray, as all of God's people said. Amen. You can be seated. First thing we're going to see if we're going to get to the place where we realize that we are here for such a time as this, is we got to get to a place where we have a time of repentance. A time of repentance. Look at Mordecai in verses 1 and 2. It says, When Mordecai perceived or learned all that had happened, when he learned all that had happened, all that had been done, what had happened was Mordecai became privy to the plan of Haman, you could say. He, he discovered that all of his people were going to be executed. All of his people were going to be eliminated at a specific time. And the Word of God says that, that they were months away from it, and he responds in this way. Now, he had a lot of ways he could have responded. Up to this point, we've seen Mordecai trying to climb the ladder of power. And so he had developed some powerful friends. He had even been welcomed within the king's gate, which for a Jewish man would have been impressive that he had made his way that close. Not quite in the court, but inside the gate. And so Mordecai could have went and he tried to use all of these powerful friends that he had to try and do something different, right? We don't see Mordecai. He could have formed a petition, and said, hey, I need, I need to get enough of you to sign this petition that the king will have no choice but to see this petition. But the word of God says that what Mordecai did was he looked at all that had been done and the word of God says that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. This is a symbol in the Old Testament used often. The tearing away of your clothes was symbolic that you were showing God that everything you had, even what you covered your body with, was unimportant. Right? You tore your clothes in a way to show God, I am depending solely on you. I'm not even going to cover myself. I'm not going to do anything. God, everything on this earth, even my clothing, is unimportant. God, I am returning solely to you. And then the sackcloth and ashes would be symbolic to death and mourning, which is a, a way of repentance. So essentially what Mordecai is doing here is he's tearing his clothes and the sackcloth and ashes that would be put on him is symbolic of a few things. One, God, nothing in this earth matters to me anymore. I don't need my power. I don't need my might. I don't need my position. I don't need my influence. I don't need anything, God. I just need you. And the sackcloth and ashes was a symbol that everything I was is dead. 
And I turn from that, and I want to be your man, God. I want to rise up from this time of mourning, recognizing that what I was is not who I want to be, and I want to be who you made me to be, God. And this is an important, important spot because we start to see Mordecai finally leading and using his influence as a man of God. He hasn't been a glaring example to this point, but here we see a true burden in his heart to return fully to God. Church, I'm here to tell you that if we are going to find ourselves on the right side of serving God, if we're going to find ourselves in the place where we're doing what God called us to do in the situation that he called us to, then at some point in time, we too are going to have to look at ourselves humbly and say, God, I have not been what you called me to be, and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I lay all of those things aside, God, that you might use me now to be what you called me to be. That's a true repentance. God, forgive me. Right? We get repentance confused sometimes with begging for forgiveness. Repentance and begging for forgiveness are not the same thing. Begging for forgiveness is depending on a benevolent, gracious God to forgive you in spite of the fact you don't deserve it, which we know that he is a gracious God and he is a benevolent God. He is a merciful God and he does forgive us of our trespasses. But true repentance says, God, I want you to forgive me of my sins and then a turning, right? It's a confession and a turning. That's what a repentance is. And the Bible says that we are to repent. We are to repent before God, which means we are to confess our sin before him. He's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. But because he forgives us of all unrighteousness, we then desire to turn and go the other way. I'm not saying that we get that turn perfectly every single time, but I'm saying that's our desire. We no longer want to walk the same way that we were walking before. And so Mordecai comes to a place where we see here that he has a true repentance. He no longer wants to use his power. He no longer wants to use his influence. He wants solely to depend on God. And I think the reason that he gets to that point is Mordecai realizes like all of us are going to at some point, if you haven't already, you can't do it yourself. Your influence, your power, your might, your just, and your ways are only good enough to carry you so far. But when, 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 when things come against the wall, so to speak, you're going to need God to remove those barriers before you. You're going to need God to tear those walls down before you. And that's where Mordecai at. He looks at it and he says, my way wasn't good enough. And so I repent before God. I want to turn and I want to go your way, God. Look what happens in verse 3. I know we didn't read it out loud, but I want you to look at what happened. And in every province where the king's command and decree had arrived, that was the command and the decree that the Jews would be killed, by the way. There was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Mordecai starts to repent there in Shushan, you could say that repenting and following God became contagious in the land. It became contagious, right? We see Mordecai repent, and then all of a sudden throughout the land, everybody else starts to follow suit. Hey! Mordecai is no longer using power and influence to try to change things. He's realized that only God can change it. We should do the same thing. Let us too come before God and repent in sackcloth and ashes. You know, I would say that in our churches today, in our land today in general, we as Christians 
need to be a little more contagious with how we act. We need to be a little more contagious with how we act. We, we need to recognize that when we praise the Lord, other people praise the Lord with us. We need to realize that when we're willing to do something to serve God in a place where maybe it's not popular to serve God, it helps to strengthen and embolden another believer to say, hey, I can do that too. I can join in with that person too. Now, do they always? Maybe not, but they might. And that act of obedience on your part might be that thing that becomes contagious for somebody else to go. You know what I find encouraging and frustrating at the same time? It's when you have something at the church that needs to be done and you can't get nobody to do it and then all of a sudden somebody does it and you have a whole bunch of other people say, okay, I can help with that. And it's frustrating from the fact of, well, if you were able and capable and willing, why are you not already doing it? Why did you have to wait till somebody else did it? But on the other side, it's encouraging because it shows me that when one person is obedient, other people will get obedient with them. Now, I realize there may be reasons. You know, I don't mind helping to do it, but I didn't want to be in charge of it, or I didn't think I was capable or whatever. You know, whatever excuse you got is fine with me. But the fact of the matter is I've seen it over and over and over again, Right? Something sits with nobody doing it forever, and then you finally, somebody finally does it, and now all of a sudden you got five other people going, well, I can help with that. That's amazing. I'm glad that we have more help than we can stand, but you've been here the whole time. It was sitting vacant. You want to see people serve the Lord? Right, I get that all the time too. Those faithful saints who serve in so many ways, right? One of the greatest ways to encourage people to serve is to serve. One of the least encouraging things you can do is quit. You want to see people around you be more happy, more willing to come to church? Come to church. Come to church. Do you know how easy it is for everybody in your house and in your family to stay home if they see you stay home? But if they see you get up and come to church over and over again, do you know what most of the time eventually happens? They come with you. Right? They come with you at some point. Not every time, not every week. I'm not saying that. People are allowed to miss church sometimes. Unless you go to Rocky Valley. But you want to see the people in your family come to church? Start coming to church. Right? We don't realize just how mighty God is that he can use the simplest of tasks from us to bring glory to himself. That just by turning to God, just by doing what he's called us to do in the first place, just by being obedient, just by praising him. You want to know how I know how contagious praising him is? Because about, man, I'm older than I thought I was. About 15 years ago, I guess, something of that nature. About 15 years ago, I was uh, much younger, obviously. I was much prettier, much thinner. I was the picture of beauty. That's what I'm saying. You wasn't all that pretty either. All right. Um, and they say I look just like you, so go on and say that. All right. About 15 years ago, I went to a Bible conference. I got invited to a Bible conference. I'd never been to a Bible conference. I was, I was about 25, 26 years old, and I was too cool for most things, right? I was a cool dude. I'd been a football player. I'd been all these things. And so I didn't sing out loud in church. 
You know why I didn't sing out loud in church? Because I didn't feel like I sang very well. And I didn't want anybody to hear me not singing very well. And so I went to a Bible conference, and I was sitting in a row of people. And I want you to know that out of that row of people, there was only one person on that row that could sing. And he leads music at a church every Sunday now. And so there was only one of us that had a talent to sing. And we're sitting at this Bible conference, and all this group of men start to sing. And all of a sudden, I look, and the man beside me, who had spent a majority of his life addicted to drugs, that if any of you knew him, you would know that he's crazier than a bat. But he loves Jesus. He does love Jesus, and you can't deny that. And all of a sudden, he is both hands raised to the top of the roof, and he's tall, so he can raise them a lot higher than I can. His hands are as high as they can go, and he's singing to the top of his lungs, and he doesn't know the song. And so he's singing a lot of the wrong words. And it's driving me insane because he's singing the wrong words. And I would have said, can you not read them? But again, he spent a lot of his life on drugs. He may not have known how to read them. And on this side is another man who's just a little bit older than me with both hands raised high, singing the right words, but on the wrong key. And I thought, what is wrong with these people? What is wrong with these people? But by about the third song, do you want to know what I was doing? I had both hands raised, just as high in the air as they could go, shouting the wrong words to the top of my lungs on the wrong key, not even the same key as the guy that was on the wrong key beside me. You know why that is? Because praising the Lord is contagious. You sit around with somebody who is miserable and upset and angry all the time. Do you know what you're very likely to become pretty quickly? angry and upset and miserable. You come looking for something wrong with everything that happens, then guess what? You're going to find it. But if you come and you raise holy hands to God and you sing the wrong words in the wrong key at the wrong time, somebody beside you is going to sing with you. Because praising God and serving God is contagious. Just like repentance is contagious. Do you want to see things change in the world around you? Try starting with repenting and see who joins you in repenting and turning back to God. So we see first that we have to have a time of repentance. Second, and this one's short, don't worry. There'll be a risk that we must overcome. There'll be a risk that we have to overcome. You start to get serious about serving God, the world notices they get, they, some people get on board with you, some people don't, and this is no different. The queen, Queen Esther begins to notice that Mordecai is acting different. He's repenting in sackcloth and ashes. He won't come any further into the city because it's against the law to come any further with sackcloth and ashes. And so she sends him clothes. Look at Mordecai out there. Let me send him some clothes. And what does Mordecai do? If you, I'll give you a synopsis for time. He responds by refusing, not only refusing the clothes, but by sending a word back to the queen. Hey, listen, all of your people are going to be killed. You are in the king's palace. You need to go to the king and you need to tell him the plan of Haman. You need to tell him that this decree that Haman has had him seal with his ring and send out to the land is an evil plot to kill the Jews. Esther, speak to your husband on behalf of your people. And Esther hears back. This is where we are in verse 10. She says, hey, 
Go back and tell Mordecai that his plan sounds okay. It sounds like a reasonable plan. And it's great that you've turned to God and you're repenting and you're mourning and sackcloth and ashes and, and you're doing all of these things. But there's a big problem with me getting on board with your plan. And well, it's just quite simply this. The king could kill me. If, if I do what you're telling me to do, cousin, if I do what you've commanded me to do, the king has every right within the law to kill me on the spot. Because it's been decreed that anybody that goes into the king's chamber without being requested by him, unless he lifts his scepter to that person to save their life, they will be killed. So there's a major obstacle here. I don't know that I can get on board with it. And I'm reminded that sometimes we deal with that, don't we? We, we turn to God. We repent. We're mourning in sackcloth and ashes. God, I want to change. I want to be different. God, use me. Pour into me, God. Pour out of me, God. Use my situation. Use where I'm at. God, I'm struggling. I lay it at your feet. And we look up and we're still in the valley. Right? Sometimes I think we come to the altar and we pray and we leave it before God and we hope that he's going to send us a heavenly helicopter to lift us straight out of the valley and put us straight back on the mountain, but we lift our heads up and we are still in the valley where we were. The person that we've been struggling with hasn't disappeared. They're still there. Maybe if it's a person in your workplace, they've now been moved into your department where you have to see them more often. And I believe that this is the fiery trial that Peter would later write about. It's the fiery trial. And what does the Word of God teach us about the fiery trial? Peter says this, it's like the refiner's fire. It's set to make us more capable of facing the next trial. It's set to increase our faith. It's set to make us more like God as we walk through that valley. You see, the thing is, maybe we're still in this valley because we're not prepared for the mountain. Maybe we're still in this valley because we're not prepared for the next valley. Maybe we're still in this fire because we're not prepared for what happens when we leave the fire because God's going to call us to a deeper level of obedience which we aren't ready for yet. Maybe we're not ready to endure the success that comes after the valley. How many of you heard the stories of people who have come into great wealth, great fortune, great success and have squandered it all and made their life miserable because they weren't prepared for it? God is still preparing me for great wealth. Some of you obviously already have yours, which should be reflected in your tithing reports. Right? Sometimes we don't get out of it into the next thing because we're not ready for it. And the thing is, God is using us where we are to perfect us, to mold us and make us more like him. We have to have a season of repentance. We have an obstacle we have to overcome, a risk to overcome. And finally this morning, we have to have a resolve to finish. The rest of the chapter, Mordecai hears Esther's excuses, right? Cousin, I may die if I do what you tell me to do. He sends back this word. He says, listen, don't you think for a minute that you're going to be immune from this decree just because you're in the palace. When all of your people are killed by this decree, somebody is going to tell the king that you are one of those Jewish people and that you should be killed too, and then you're going to be killed there in the king's palace. And all of us are going to already be dead, so we're not going to be able to save you or do anything about it. Right? This is one of those situations, Esther, where eventually the truth is going to come out and you're going to get caught. And then he says this, and it's the title of the morning's message. Perhaps it's the most popular verse in all of Esther. 
Do you not think that perhaps everything that has happened, everything that has come, every part of this that has brought you to this place in the king's palace, Esther, do you not think that maybe you're there for such a time as this? Do you not think for a moment, Esther, that maybe the only reason that everything that has happened has happened, as twisted as it may have been and as messed up as it looked at on the surface, do you not think that maybe you're there just for this season to do what God has called you to do? And I love Esther's response. Maybe you're right. Everybody pray. Everybody fast for the next three days. And I'm going to go to the king. I'm going to go into the king. And if I die, I die. If I die, at least I die being obedient to God. Now, if anybody wants to know the outcome of her obedience that doesn't know, I'll give you a, another synopsis. All the people of Israel are spared. As the king is made aware of the plot of Haman, and rather than Haman having all the Jews killed, Haman is killed. On the very gallows he built to hang Mordecai, which I think is pretty cool. So because of her obedience, because of her Resolve to see things change around her. An entire people were saved. If you look back at the life of Esther, just show of hands as we close. Just show of hands. I'm always curious about this. Now, if you were here several years ago when I taught Esther, this may be cheating for you, but that's okay. This is your bonus. How many of you, if somebody asked you about Esther, you would think of the woman that saved all of God's people by going to the king. Go on, you can raise your hand. This is where you interact. How many of you, when you think of Esther, you think of the lady that made herself a prostitute to become queen? See, so many more people think of Esther and her obedience for such a time as this. I'm the one that, that goes into the king and saves all of the people, and I, I come in obedience. Most of us don't ever think about how she got there. That's the beauty of it. When it comes to serving God, it doesn't matter what you were before. It doesn't matter what brought you to this place. It doesn't matter what got you into where you are. When God puts his hand on you and he says, I have a plan for you for such a time as this, all he requires is our obedience to do amazing and great, incredible things. And I praise God that he doesn't need my perfection to do his work. Because if he needed my perfection to do his work, I'd never get anything done. And folks, this is where we got to get if we're going to see our situations change and our problems solved. We have to move to a place of repentance. We have to be humble enough to say, God, I stand before you having not been what you called me to be. We have to realize that when we get to that place where we say, God, I resolve to go the other way, there are going to be obstacles in our path. There are going to be things that slow us down. It's not going to be the, the easy path. But we have to have a resolve to say, God, I'm going to serve you no matter what happens. No matter who doesn't like me, no matter who makes fun of me, no matter what in the world happens, if it costs me something, I'm going to pay that cost and call that cost 
nothing compared to the glory that's coming in the future. God, I don't want you to take away my difficulty. I want you to perfect me in my difficulty. I don't want you to remove my hardship, God. I want you to change my hardship through me that I might make everything around me different. Be like coffee. What happens when you put coffee in a pot of boiling water? It turns it into something sweet, doesn't it? Well, not sweet, maybe different. Turns it into something we drink to get going in the morning. It doesn't let the adverse environment change it. It changes the environment around it. And that's what we can be when we only do what God has called us to and recognize that we were created for such a time as this one. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that in 2023, God, we would recognize that you made us, you created us, and you placed us right where we are for such a time as this very one. That you put us right here, God, with, with all of our failures and all of our abilities, all of our talents and all of our inadequacies, God, you put us here for such a time as this. So God, it would be my prayer that if someone here stands right on the precipice of serving you, lacking only repentance to turn, God, would you give them the courage to repent before you now this morning? To say, God, I lay it down at your feet. I lay everything else behind. Nothing else matters but serving you, God. God, give us the courage and the resolve to move forward even when it seems difficult, even when the obstacles remain. Give us the resolve to finish faithfully. And God, we thank you and we praise you in your holy, saving name this morning. Amen. Please stand. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.